Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning on this uh, wintry, wintry February day in Colorado. We're, uh, we're catching up maybe for some of the really nice weather we have through the winter. Uh, we do need precipitation, so if it's going to come, it should come, hopefully, especially in the mountains. We really do. We really are going to need the water this year. A lot of water levels. We went into the fall lower than we have in the last couple of years, so hopefully we'll get a good precipitation. We won't know till probably April. We have a special show for you today. Uh, later on this hour, uh, Dan Prenslow, the director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, is going to join us. He'll be with us for a good amount of time. And you uh, listeners got to send in questions, and we're going to answer as many of those as we can and uh, just get his take on what's going on, Parks and Wildlife. So a lot of people had a lot of good, great questions, so we're looking forward to that. At the end of the second hour, Chad Lachance is going to do another cooking segment. Those have become really popular. And, of course, we're going to talk about both ice fishing and getting ready for open water. There's just... uh, I know it seems cold. I know it seems strange, but it's right around the corner. But right now, let's go right to the phones. And uh, joining us is with Sportfish Colorado up in the Blue Mesa Taylor area, and that's Robbie Richardson. Good morning, Robbie. Good morning, Terry. How are you this morning? Good. Good. I'm tromping around in about a foot of snow here on Taylor Reservoir. Well, we'll get a, we'll get an on the ice report. What um, what's the weather like up Blue Mesa Taylor area? It's warmer than we are, I think. Yeah, I think so. We're um, oh, we were probably about fourteen degrees when I pulled up, and it was somewhat clear, but it's socking in, and snow's starting to lightly fall as I speak here. Yeah, it was four below at my house this morning. So <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. That's rare yeah, that we're uh, we're not the the cold spot. Yeah, it is. Speaking of cold, Blue Mesa is a large reservoir. It takes time for it to freeze. Um, I know they started getting out on parts of it a couple weeks ago. What's the condition of ice in Blue Mesa and Taylor Reservoirs up where you fish? It's uh, surprisingly good despite the warm weather. The entire Blue Mesa capped probably three weeks ago, and we're running, I want to say at minimum, eight to 16 inches of ice across the reservoir. There are some big pressure ridges that I would uh, be really careful crossing on warmer days. It seems like you get some open water, you know, kind of settling on the sheet that dips below the other sheet of ice. And so they look pretty sketchy on warmer days. On the colder days, they seem to button up some, but I wouldn't trust them. So be careful around those. Uh, We have probably... With the last little snows, there's some crusty, maybe four or five inches of snow, and then a couple of fresh inches of snow on top. So it's good conditions for running sleds or side-by-sides. Taylor Reservoir, it's probably got close to two foot of ice. It's got, like I said, I think 10 inches of snow on top. A little bit of slush in a few areas. Uh, Great for snowmobiles. I probably wouldn't take a side-by-side unless it has tracks um, or a four-wheeler, unless it has tracks on it. And if you don't have a machine and you're coming up to fish either Taylor or Blue Mesa, are there 
areas close enough where you can park and walk in without having to, you know, walk excessive distances? Yeah. One real nice thing about uh, Taylor this year, and I think last year, the, there's some new guys running the marina, the Birdsey brothers, and they have been plowing the road all the way to the marina and then plowing the parking lot. So what used to be a walk from the road is, is cut down considerably. And so you can access um, all of that lake towards Willow Creek and the marina without having to do too too much of a hike. And then as far as Blue Mesa is concerned, there's a lot of great um, road access spots like Willow Creek, Old Stevens, um, the Bay of Chickens, all of those before this snow anyways, you could drive about to the ice, um, which is a little ways because our water level, we're down about 56 feet on Blue Mesa. So um, the original parking areas are still a ways from the ice, but uh, a lot of vehicles have been making it down to parked pretty darn close to the ice. Well, that's good because mobility and moving around, we'll talk more about fishing and presentations later, but it can be really, uh, really important sometimes. How is how has the fishing been? What uh, what are you targeting mostly and how has the success rate been on both Taylor and Blue Mesa? The trout for rainbow and brown trout, the fishing's been some of the best I've ever seen on Blue Mesa. Um at least early on and even I was out yesterday with a crew and I think we probably put 40 fish on the ice um you know a lot of catch and release but there's uh there's pockets of these trout that if you can find one of those pockets there's just little highways and just lots of lots of opportunity coming through so we move a lot until we find one of those traffic lanes and then you know you just basically maximize the opportunities until they slow down so trout fishing is great. The um, the lake trout is probably what I've been chasing the most on both both bodies of water, and uh, the fishing has been good. The numbers, especially on both Blue Mesa and Taylor, um, kind of that 22 to 24 and under inch range. There's a lot of action. Um, one thing I have been seeing this year is there's a lot of kind of mixed size classes we've been chasing some big fish and those big fish will be up on a piece of structure and there'll be little fish mixed in with them trying to throw you off so if i see two or three little fish on an area um i usually don't let it discourage me like i normally would i'll give that spot a little more time in uh, hopes of kind of seeing a better caliber fish come by well and when you talk about better cal go ahead rob Go ahead, Terry. I, I, I was just going to say, when you talk about bigger fish on Blue Mesa, you're talking about th- there's some giants in there, aren't there? There are. We're usually trying to target those fish that are in that 30-inch-plus range. Um, once you kind of get to that 28- to 30-inch class, they, they kind of hang out together. Um, so sometimes you'll find an area where there's, like, maybe just a couple fish. Sometimes there might be you know, 10 to 12 fish, and they kind of will work a piece of structure together trying to trap rainbows or kokanee up against the shallows or up against the ice. But um, we've seen the biggest one we've had come through the ice this year was about 31 pounds. That's a that's a great fish anywhere. Of course, Blue Mesa produced the state record, which I believe is over 50 pounds, isn't it? Yeah, just over 50. Wow, that's this. 
you know, just an impressive fish. And to know we have those opportunities right here in Colorado, has the lake trout on Taylor been a similar or a little different? We're seeing opportunities every day. Both lakes, the fish have been, they're just eating a little funky this year. A lot of, you get a lot of touches and, uh, you know, close calls that don't materialize um, on both lakes. And I don't think there's a correlation between lakes. It's just kind of a mood thing with these fronts coming through. But um, there's, there's been plenty of opportunities for, for size on Taylor as well. We've had this morning, we've had a couple close calls. We had a big fish run into our line, which always kind of makes them leery. They're, those fish have such big peck fins that sometimes they're swimming around your bait thinking about biting it and they hit that line and then it kind of throws them off. They're wondering what, what just happened. Um, so it's hard to convince them after that. But anyhow, we've had a couple fish that broke off this morning. We've had some good action. We just haven't, had it all come quite together yet um let's start with some presentations you said the trout fishing on blue mace has been phenomenal what type of presentations when you're going after the rainbows and browns what do you fish with we um i kind of run a one-two punch i like to throw a dead stick bait down which is usually like a little ratso or maybe a one to two inch tube jig and then the uh the other rod I'll have down there is usually like a, um, a cast master or a PK spoon, something a little more aggressive. And lately, the jigging spoons have been out producing the dead stick baits. Um, and I play with color. Copper's been a good one in the cloudy days. Pink and white, um, green and silver, those have all been good. Um, but the key is, like we kind of talked about yesterday, is reading you know, watching your fish finder, reading the mood of the fish, which may kind of sound, um, you know, repetitive in the fishing world. But the more you stare at that fish finder and kind of see what the response of the fish is, the more you're going to be able to hone in on what that fish wants on any given day. So there's no, there we go. Oh, we just had a big fish come down and hammer us. Didn't, didn't stick. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no problem. Anyhow, we always like the live reports. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a big Laker dancing all over. He's still down there, but I don't think he's going to bite again. It, the key is really just reading what these fish want. Today, these fish have been a little moody. Like the first several just kind of swam through, so we've kind of slowed our presentation down. And uh, the same thing with the trout. You just, you know, see see what they're showing you. If they're not biting or if they're not sticking around, that means they don't like what you're doing. And so you got to tweak it a little or a lot until you figure out what does keep them around and what is going to trigger a bite. Well, I imagine you have to move quite a bit, too, till you find the fish. You just don't want to fish an empty hole, do you? That's, yeah, there's more truth to that than most guys realize. And it's not always easy when the conditions are tough to stay mobile. Like today we got a foot of snow, so or 10 inches, it's, it makes it more challenging to move, and sometimes when it's one of those negative days, it's a little, uh, you're just less motivated. But the more mobile you can stay, the more water you can cover, the, the better chance you have of running into a hot bite. What, real quick, what kind of presentations are you using for the lake trout? The lake trout, it's hard to beat the trusty tube jig. Um, so the tube jig is probably what I have on most of the time. 
But from there, it's all about playing with size, color, and, uh, you know, how heavy of a jig to use. I, I think kind of a staple is a three and a half to five inch on the size. And then white, glow, or a natural brown or green are probably the first three options that I'm going to start off with and kind of use that as my home base. And about how long will the fishing continue on Blue Mesa and Taylor? What, how late into the year? You know, it's been warm around Blue Mesa, warmer than normal. And if it keeps up, I think, you know, it might only be till the first week of March. But it looks like it's supposed to get cold after this snowstorm comes through the next few days. So if that's the case, it could be as late as the second to third week of March on Blue Mesa. Um, so far that snow has been insulating the ice and it's been holding up just fine, but we'll see what the weather does. And then Taylor, it, uh, you know, it's colder. It always has more snow and traditionally you can ice fish it into the first to second week of April and sometimes later. All right, my friend, we are running out of time. If people want more information or if they want to book a guide trip, how do they get a hold of you? They can check out, um, for this time of year. We've got an ice fishing site, icefishcolorado.com. Uh, we try and keep updated, you know, the conditions on Blue Mesa and Taro and sometimes Taylor. And uh, so they can check out icefishcolorado.com or sportfishcolorado.com. They're both uh, come back to us. And then if they have questions specifically that are on the website, they can always shoot me a call or a text at 719-649-3378. All right, my friend, good luck. Land that next big one, okay? We got one coming in right now. Thanks, Terry. All right. Robbie Richardson, Sportfish Colorado. Great fisherman, great angler. You've seen him at the ISE show. We're going to take a timeout. We come back. We're going to be joined by Dan Prenzlos, the director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear, 65 years old and still young at heart, taking care of all your outdoor needs. Stop by a Jack's store near you. We are waiting for the uh, director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife to join us. I'm going to uh, go over a few things, and then hopefully he'll, he'll – oh, he's on. So let's go right to the phones. And uh, joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the director, Dan Prenzel. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? It's kind of winter out, Dan. Kind of kind of winter with not enough snow, but uh, we have enough cold, I believe. Well, you know, uh, I kind of want to introduce you to the people before we get into some of the things we want to talk about. You've been, gosh, with Parks and Wildlife for how long were you with the agency before you became director? Uh, I think I'm in my 35th year, so maybe, you know, close to 33 years before I was director. Might work out as a career. <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I play my cards right. Yeah. Hey, um, one of the things I'm always appreciative of is when the management of any type of organization is involved in the activities. And you've always been an avid hunter and angler. Have you been able to get out at all? Uh, yeah, not as much as I would like. But, uh, yes, I have done a couple pheasant hunts, went on a on a deer hunt and an elk hunt. So, um, yeah, it's been, been enjoyable fall and, and, uh, now it's tax season, unfortunately. <laughs> so <laughs> hunting season eventually has to end. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I guess there's a, I think this last weekend for goose, if I recall. 
Yeah, it is the last weekend for goose. Of course, we got the conservation goose season, which can be phenomenal or it can be terrible, depending on the day you go. But uh, right. we've that when that comes in, we've got a lot of questions from uh, listeners, Dan, where you've agreed to get to. And in all full disclosure, I sent those uh, to you ahead of time, so you had a chance to research them. But before we even get into that, it's been. I think you're. Are you about two years on the job now? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, two years in May. So, you know, it's been, uh, to say the least, it was an interesting time. I don't know whether to blame you or give you credit, because obviously you were able to get the entire population of Colorado to go outdoors. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody <laughs> did, and, and uh, I, you know, we're actually, we'll probably talk about that, Terry, here. We're, you know, I'm pretty um, happy and, I guess, proud about that. We're, there were a bunch of my... Uh, State counterparts in other states, I won't mention which one, but they it a pretty much closed business to the state, not just in hunting and angling, but on parks and, and uh, quarantines and et cetera. And, you know, each, each, everybody's got to do their own thing. But we, we went with a uh, um, it's healthy to be outside mentally and physically. And uh, I coined a phrase, managed yes, um, you know, while keeping our staff and our customers safe instead of, you know, no, which was real simple. Um, and uh, so we, we kept open. Uh, we did have to shut down camping for a little bit. And some of our parks, we had one two-week season and a turkey season that we had to shut down. Um, that was it. Uh, other than that, we, we stayed open, obviously uh, worked hard at uh, uh, being open so people had some kind of avenue to get outside since they really couldn't do anything uh, much else so we're we're real happy about that 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 comes with a cost too uh, so you know use is up and and uh, <clears throat> um, income's actually up in hunting fishing parks at, at some degree and so is use on consumables because people are you know out and about and we need to uh, you know take care of that issue so but that, that's a great you know, question you're, a- you're absolutely right because People during this time needed uh, an outlet, and the outdoors, whether you fish, hunt, camp, hike, mountain bike, just walk the trails, um, they just needed to get out of their house. They couldn't travel. There were no youth sports, activities, and I think it was a godsend to live in a state like Colorado where we had these opportunities. But let's get into some of these questions while we have time and see how many we can get to, and a lot of them kind of address some of the very issues you're talking about. In fact, I'm going to bunch the first two together. Um, the first one, uh, Brad said, what impact did COVID have on fishing and hunting license numbers? How is CPW managing for the increased participation? And Jeremy, his question kind of folds into that. Jeremy B., anyone who's been out enjoying the outdoors the past 12 months can obviously see the effect of added pressure done to the resources, fish and fishing in particular. Has there been in just any discussions at CPW regarding uh, determining if new or tighter regulations on harvest restrictions will need to be made in order to sustain, a, to sustain the fishing population? So kind of I'll fold those together. We obviously saw a big increase. How did that impact you and what kind of mitigation do you see coming? Well, that's multiple questions, but I, I'll I'll take a stab at it, and if I miss something, Terry, you can help me with that. But uh, so I think the only bad news that I've seen is we, when um, um, uh, COVID or or Wuhan virus started in 
March, we, we did impact our walleye spawn, and so we did a little walleye spawn, but most of that we postponed because it's a uh, uh, wet environment. We did an analysis, and we do have uh, we did take some spawn, and we've, we've been talking to other states, if I recall, about getting walleyes, and we believe one year-class walleye was not going to tank the system. So um, I think we'll be out and about strong uh, this spring on walleye. So that's really the only biological impact that we knew of um, and that was by choice um, because of the situation as far as licenses uh, they're up about uh, uh, 21 percent for this past year uh, and uh, uh, um, fishing licenses where i've not i've looked at that where data won't really come in until um, uh, this next spring uh, for the for the year cycle on fish so we've not had any specific uh, uh, fishing regulations or population dynamic issues that we know of we did have issues within fishing but it was really drought related this last summer you know where we lost some reservoirs not because of overuse matter of fact we you know we encouraged use when we had the you know the to close uh, reservoirs from drought so hunting licenses are also up um, applications were up, although it, like big game, it was not significant because there um, uh, we had some rise in over the counter, but uh, obviously limited licenses. There's only so many lim- limited licenses, but small game was up and uh, turkey was up. Uh, things that are not uh, overly restricted or over the counter. So um, heavy, you know, again heavy heavy use, and, and if you were out there, you you kind of saw that because nobody was at a restaurant, and nobody was at a bar. And, not many people were in church, and they, had, um, they went outside. Do you think you're going to have to take any measures this year to mitigate maybe that heavy use? I mean, do you see it as an impact coming into 2021? Will our normal stocking programs continue? Do you think the resources can handle it? I do think so. I think uh, part of that, um, um, I don't have hard data that has significantly impact that and as you well know you know if your catch rate if you if there's a, a few less fish in there your catch rate's going to go down and so we'll we will be able to uh, monitor that but it, for the most part it won't be a significant overuse because your catch rate goes down so uh, but so you, we'll watch that so you don't anticipate any bag limit changes at this time not no i don't all right. You know, the next question kind of folds into that. I think we'll take one more, then we'll take a break. And then I know you want to talk about, there was a couple of questions about the wolf issue. Uh, Chris asked, will there be any reduction in the removal of pike, bass, walleye from the West Slope Lakes? And he would like to see a more diverse stocking population, not just rainbow trout. Well, I can say one thing before you even get into this there's a lot more stocking that goes on in colorado than just rainbow trout but what about the west slope you don't have much choice in how you manage that do you no yes and no but uh, mostly we're a cold water state but obviously when you get extreme north uh western plateau and then eastern eastern plains we do have some uh, pike are different they're not a warm water but you know bass and walleye are more warmer water uh, but we do have we do have regulations above us to uh, um, endangered species issues. So there are certain places that we can't put reproductive uh, walleye or bass. We are always working on, um, um, let's call them triploid fish, but uh, 
uh, and I'm not a, a I'm not the expert on this, but basically fish that can't reproduce and, and uh, um, muskies are like that. So you don't we put muskies in places that uh, that won't reproduce, um, unlike pike will. And so you can actually what you put in, you know, you you don't have an overpopulation, and if they get out, that's not a you know, they're not a self-sustaining population. So there, we have a lot of that kind of stuff going on, and we're always continually working with our uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as it relates to endangered species and populations um, that when we can, we use regular, you know, like I said, walleye bass and other places we, we cannot stock fish that can reproduce. So um, good well, question. I, I don't have detail about each water. I do have some information that I got from the biologist in a previous interview. And one of the things, you know, they're trying to get smallmouth walleye and pike out of the western slope because they can be has they can predate on the uh, the invade the endangered species over there. Largemouth don't seem to be as big a problem, and they are switching some of those lakes to stocking largemouth bass. But as far as his question about stocking just trout. There's actually more numbers of other fish that are stocked. It's just it's less expensive to grow trout to catchable size than a different way of managing. But we get millions of walleyes, bass, panfish stocked every year. The hatchery people have been on with us many, many times. Dan, I, I want to take a time out if I can have them put you on hold. When I come back, we had a couple questions about the wolves. Is that okay? Absolutely, Terry. I'd be glad to talk about it. All right. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, Dan Prenzlow, the director of CPW, we're getting, we had some questions sent in about the new uh, reintroduction of wolves. We'll get to those and a lot more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. You got a lot of nerve to say you got a helping hand. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Uh, they've got locations up and down the front range of Stop by one. If you're an outdoor enthusiast, they can take care of all your needs. We are talking currently on the phone to the director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, uh, Dan Prenslow. He's been gracious to come enough to come on and spend some time and allowed for the listeners to send in some questions. Uh, Dan, I want to get to the wolves, but before I do, I want to throw in one really quick one, and then we'll get to the wolf issue. Uh, Bill asked, with all the mo- Bill asked, with all the moose in North Park and Red Feathers area, when are they going to increase the number of available tags? I see more moose in Red Feathers than I do elk. That's a good question. I, that's not a real quick answer. I did ask um, some staff, thanks for that question, um, before. Uh, of course, we're still in North Park, still managing, and I'll get to Red Feather for about between five and 600 animals. So, we're pretty static on that. That's about where we're at. Um, interestingly, when you ask a question, I, I learned some things out of this. We uh, we really had never really increased uh, antler size beyond about 37 inches. So back in 2009, which obviously a bit ago, we reduced licenses for about five years and uh, to see if we could increase antler size and full age obviously can increase bull age, but antler size really didn't change. I think uh, at the end of that five-year period, it was only like an inch and a half difference. Um, so back, at, so then in 2012, we we increased the licenses because we really weren't affecting the size of, of bulls. So we've gone from um, 
2012 to 2020, we've gone from 87 uh, licenses to 127. Uh, let's see. I want to make sure that's total. Uh, and antler license, that's from 32 to 57. Cows from 55 to 70. Um, still averaging about 37 inches uh, for, for bulls. Um, in red feather, great question. Population is increasing in uh, red feather. Um, we do see better uh, sized bulls in red feather. And I just, where did I read that? Sorry, I got to look at that. Um, increase in population. Um, let's see, we're currently offering about 42 cow moose licenses and 20 bull in red feather. Uh, that trend is. Uh, moving up, um, and I don't have the numbers for this year. So I, hopefully that covers it. So about static in North Park and in, and upwardly increasing. There is a distribution um, in red feather, as you said in your question, kind of uh, moose don't stand around like elk. Um, or I mean, they do, excuse me, I'm just opposite. Moose, moose are pretty solitary and don't run off like elk and so they are vulnerable when you find them um obviously very license dependent uh on your uh on the population so i i expect to see a few more licenses coming in red feather yeah and uh you will see more moose than elk even if there aren't very many moose because the, the elk run away the moose kind of look at you like would you like to try and come over here and i'll see i'll introduce yeah. myself yeah. yeah they'll introduce themselves but yeah they're, they're harder to see in the trees but once you find them they're not they don't run off so well i, I think fact, they're the most dangerous. they might come toward yeah. you i think they're the most dangerous animal in colorado if you don't know what you're doing uh let's uh, move on if to you the have world. a dog you you're correct Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Hey, uh, let's move on to the wolf thing. I want to make sure we have plenty of time for this. Uh, we got two questions involving the, the wolves, so I'm going to kind of throw them together. One is with the prospect of reintroducing wolves to Colorado, and this question is from Craig. How do biologists expect the reintroduction to affect elk, moose, deer populations over the next decade? And could we cre be creating problems for our herds down the road? The second question is will you allow the governor to push you to speed up the introduction of wolves, or will you take the allotted time to do it the best way it can be done, if that's possible? And I'll let you kind of take the moose, uh, the moose, the wolf issue, and kind of expound on it a little bit, Dan. Okay, thanks, Terry. Um, I appreciate the questions. So the first question on uh, elk, uh, deer, and moose. Um, so we got to have a lot of data to, to, from the north, especially. It's a little different if you get into the Wisconsin and Minnesotas where they have a significant uh, wolf population. But Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, and there's different sets of data. So wolves obviously will impact um, deer, elk, and moose populations. That's what they feed on. Um, and domestic livestock occasionally too, uh, unfortunately, and that that that's a reality of of wolves. Um, it, and I'm doing this really. We don't have any obviously significant data in Colorado, so we have to ascertain our information from other states. And there's different um, objectives. They have different populations. We're obviously the big a big elk state, um, but I can tell you is wolves just biologically they don't spend a bunch of time 
they'll they'll kill and eat deer, but they generally don't concentrate on deer because one deer will not feed a, a pack of wolves for uh, it's more, more like a snack. And so they really concentrate on larger animals, uh, elk and moose. Um, and Wyoming seems pretty significant reductions in moose populations, uh, and part of that's their their nature, as we talked about. Moose are solitary, and a wolf uh, pack finds a moose, they're generally in pretty much trouble. Where an elk, um, herd elk, you know, a couple hundred elk running around, we've got a lot more elk. You know, they'll get a get an elk or two, but the herd moves off, and uh, so. There will be localized impacts when we have significant wolves on the landscape. Of course, we do have a few wolves already, but uh, as we, uh, per ballot uh, uh, 114, as we have to move wolves on the landscape, we will have isolated or, you know, geographic areas where moose and deer and elk will be impacted, and we'll have places that will be less impacted. And so we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see on, on what kind of, impact that will be i do believe it will infect hunting at some level um you know there may be places we'll have to have less cow licenses to to counterbalance that or or uh, um, we just have to wait and see on that uh as far as the second question terry the uh, um uh, the governor is is along with me once proposition 114 passed it is now actually a law within my books that that i must create this plan and uh, reintroduce wolves by december of 23 and there are lots of different opinions on how fast or how slow we should or shouldn't do that i I can tell you what the law reads that it says it must be have a plan and and wolves by december of 23 so the commission parks and wildlife commission had a very serious discussion about that the last meeting and and agreed that it December 23 would be the backstop, and if they can get it done earlier, that's fine too. But there's many parts and pieces to that bill. There's four or five or six major pieces. We must do a plan. We must have create a depredation or a game damage plan. We must have meetings around the state uh, to to listen to um, our customers and our constituents. And so all those things have to happen. Right, obviously, write a plan and. It, continuing education so uh we're going to have to get all that done and and i can tell you we'll get it done by no later than december of 23 and there are moving targets within the wolf environment um they were delisted federally um about the first week of november and there's a 60-day period there so the first week of january they now are no longer federally listed as an endangered species in colorado there's several lawsuits on that subject, and uh, so we don't know. Uh, they could be federally relisted again uh, if the judge decides that uh, <clears throat> they need a stay of that decision or a year and a half from now or so whenever those lawsuits um, run their course. Um, there could be no change, and Colorado will still be in charge of wolf management or it could go back to the u.s fish and wildlife service and those are all piece and parts that we have to discuss as we're in this planning phase now i think people need to realize too that if you don't like this don't blame colorado parks and wildlife this isn't a proposal you guys this was a proposal put on the ballot by independent groups that people voted on 
And if you didn't like the idea, you know, you needed to vote. I don't know if you did or not, but um, sounds like, you know, there's just we're just in the exploration phases. We'll get you back on as we get deeper into it. And you can maybe expound a little bit more on what the plan is looking like. Do you have time to maybe sneak in two real quick questions yet? We've got a little bit of time. Yeah, I I can. And and yes, I voted. And that's important uh, for everybody. Obviously, that's my opinion. But uh, that's one of the wonderful things about this country that you have a chance to vote, uh, you know, whether it's for or against up to you. Um, But uh, yeah, it's absolutely was. uh, It's now a law based on the voters of Colorado. So Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, now this one is kind of a personal question. Ionis wants to know, why on earth did CPW allow research scientists to ride around on ATVs at the Tamarack Ranch State Wildlife Area in the middle of the day during deer season rifle? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can even answer that. Do you have any idea? Was there some project going on? Yeah, I tried to look into that, and I, I actually couldn't find the data on that. So, um, you know, if they disrupted a hunt, I apologize. I, I would say that, the, you know, work continues um, you know, if it was first light or last light, I would I would be uh, uh, a little more distraught. But we do have work that we need to get done on our properties. So uh, our people are generally very very mindful about um, uh, our uh, you know our customers and our constituents and not trying to ruin their hunt. Whether it's uh, in a goose pit or not, we try not to get out there while the geese are coming in, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't know the specifics. You know that generally midday, you know, if you're white-tailed deer hunting, generally not a big effect. But not saying that uh, something that you want to see, and and but we do have things that we need to complete, you know, for our work day too. So couldn't couldn't find any detail on that. Last question that we have that we'll be able to get to is when will uh, Dave asks when will Colorado allow for scopes on muzzleloaders like many neighboring states allow during hunting season? Well, good question, Dave. So we do allow that. We do allow scopes on muzzleloaders, but it's only during the regular rifle season. We do not allow scopes, and I don't anticipate allowing scopes during the muzzleloading season, and that's really because the intent of those seasons, archery and muzzleloader, even though we did uh, years ago, there was a big you know, discussion slash fight over inline versus traditional you know, flintlock and, and uh uh, percussion, but we did allow inline, even though they're much more modern. But those, the intent of those early seasons is uh, uh, more of a primitive type weapons, and since no no scopes, um, we do allow compound bows, but not crossbows unless you have a you know a disability. And so the intent is to we give you longer, we give you the best season time of the season, but uh, that's that's that traditional. Otherwise, everybody would want to be in there and uh we would have to limit it significantly so, um, again you I'm can use the ask scope, you, but it just must be in rifle season so in the regular rifle season if you want to use it on right. muzzleloader so you can't hunt your muzzleloader just during rifle season i'm going to throw a quick question yep. as you was on our list because so, when we're talking about this and if you don't have the information i understand but we did get a question and i don't know how it didn't get on the list where somebody asked why does muzzleloader season overlap with archery? He feels it puts the archery people in danger. Yeah, we've had a lot of discussions on that, Terry. And uh, so part of that is that there's a strong competition 
for um, September, especially for elk. Uh, as obviously, there's deer hunting too, archery deer hunting at the same time. But for the most part, it's more interest in elk and uh, muzzleloader and archery for the most part. Uh, we asked them if you'd like us to split, and there's two reasons. The, there, there are groups that go out, muzzleloading and archery as a group together. They don't necessarily hunt the same spot, right? Um, I get that part. And th- the choice that generally those uh, constituents had was that they would rather share the time than be split and lose time uh, within their seasons. And so... We've, we've had one safety issue that I know of, but uh, it was, uh, if I recall, I don't want to get into detail, but it was something that nobody would want to do with good hunter safety. Um, you know, took orange off or a sound shot, or I don't remember what the detail of that was, but generally we've not had um, safety issues in, and, uh, in that season. Of course, muzzleloaders must wear blaze orange and archers uh, do not need to. All right. We are way out of time. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you for coming on, being so gracious to join us. I had some more personal topics I'd like to get to, so maybe you and I can look out in the next few weeks and get you back on again. But thank you for being open, honest, addressing the questions, and we really appreciated the time you gave us today. You bet, Terry, and uh, um, always appreciate it. Thank you for what you do, and I appreciate all your listeners, and uh, good luck hunting and fishing this year. All right, Dan Dan Prenzlow, Director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Thank you again, Dan. We'll take a time out. We come back. Will Dy- Dykstra is going to join us from Tightline Outdoors on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.